Amen and amen. Good morning, King's Chapel. Happy Resurrection Day. We're glad you are connecting with us as we celebrate the best we can uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the empty tomb. That doesn't change uh, for 2,000 years. And although there's still, I believe, a healthy longing to be together, I don't think anyone thought that we would be celebrating Easter online uh, with our online service, but we're glad that you are here. And we're, we're hoping, we're praying, and we've been praying the pastors uh, at the church and other leaders in the church been praying that our time together will be a time of renewal, a time of refreshing, spiritual renewing, and intimacy with Jesus because he's alive and he is well seated, uh, right hand of the Father. So as many of you know that over the past um, several years now, probably at least six or seven, on Easter morning, uh, we do baptisms. Uh, We have several baptisms that we do. And um, this year, obviously, we're not going to be able to do that. Uh, But I want to tell you that the day is going to come when we're going to gather together. And when that day comes, we're back together under uh, this roof as gathering as the church, the people of God. We are going to do an Easter celebration 2.0. Um, we have a lot of people waiting to be baptized, and, and when we do, we will gather together, we will have baptisms, uh, we will celebrate the risen Christ with the message of, of gospel hope, uh, testimonies of gospel transformation, and baptisms that proclaim gospel truth. So that's going to happen, we pray, very soon uh, as we gather together. And you know, they've been celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ every Sunday, right? It's always, it's always good to celebrate uh, the risen Christ on Sunday morning. In fact, the church meets on Sunday morning, Sunday morning because that is the day that Jesus rose from the grave. The gospel according to Matthew chapter 28 says this. Now after the Sabbath, that would be Saturday, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, that's Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. And see, I have told you this. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Fear and great joy. And ran to tell his disciples. And behold, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And ever since that first Sunday morning when the tomb was empty, Jesus was alive and was worshipped, the church gathered together the first day of the week to worship the risen kings. And that's what we're going to do. So as Chris, Pastor Chris said earlier, we'll, we'll stay tuned to President Trump's guidelines uh, and, and at that point stay in touch with our website, our, our realm, uh, and the day that we will meet again and, and, and worship the risen Christ with baptisms. And it'll be a great time, and I hope that you could make it That day, but for now, we'll do our best. We'll sing and we'll pray and we'll proclaim the gospel of the risen kings. Um, So, if you are um, able to open up your Bibles, hopefully, you're home, you've got your Bibles open. Uh, We are looking at chapter 13 of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 20 and 21. We've been studying this book now for quite some time, and we ended on this verse uh, purposely, as you will see in a moment. And we are just looking at two verses today Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. That's our lesson for this morning, and you'll see why. 
Let's read that. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. Now, just in case some of you are jumping in on live stream and you haven't been with us for the past 12 chapters of Hebrews, let me just state for you the purpose of the letter. The reason that this author wrote this epistle, wrote this letter to this church almost 2,000 years ago. And the purpose was very simple. The purpose was to declare the supremacy and sufficiency and superiority of Christ as an exhortation to remain faithful, to remain faithful in the midst of persecution. That's, that's the purpose that this letter was written. To stand firm, to, to not abandon Christ, not to go back and turn away And to go back to previous ways of communion with God. That Jesus is not only a far better mediator, but Jesus is the only mediator between a holy God and sinful man. And as we've been going through this letter, we notice at the end of the letter, chapters 11 and 12, the author is continually continually pressing in, driving home how we ought to persevere to press on in the faith and not turn back, to to trust in Christ alone and and how we are to live our faith out, especially in the midst of persecution, especially in the midst of hardships and and difficult times and, and, and the unknown. So much was going on with that church in those days. And it's, 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 it's just amazing how the Bible and the scriptures uh, really speak to us today. There's a lot of unknown, a lot of uncertainty, uh, and a lot of hard times for us. But we are to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. And then when we get to chapter 13, the last chapter of this great book, the author wants to encourage God's people not only to remain faithful, but he gives them practical ways to live out their faith. And we've noticed that for the past two weeks in chapter 13, different ways we are to live out our faith. But now as we get to our text this morning, he's concluding his letter with a benediction. A benediction, a benediction, a bestowing of blessing upon the church the people of God. A benediction is a prayer on behalf of God's people. It's an invocation. It's a calling upon the Lord, a calling upon God to bless people, to bless and help them. And it it certainly seems appropriate at this point for the author had asked in chapter 13, verse 18 and 19, just two verses earlier, that the church would receive this letter and to remember to pray for him. And now he is in turn sending this letter and praying for them, praying for them. And he wants to pray this prayer of benediction, this invocation of calling upon the Lord upon them. Now, look with me at the beginning of this benediction. It says, now may the God of peace. God here is described, his his intrinsic character and existence is one of peace. He is called the God of peace throughout the New Testament, many places, and, and you have to remember, this, this benediction here in chapter 13, verse 20, is not without context, right? All 12 chapters before this gives it some context. And the author has gone to great lengths to show the, the holiness of God, the greatness of God, and the problem of our sin. He has said and shown us over and over how Christ gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for his sins. And because of Christ's self-sacrifice, 
we can now have peace with the God of peace. God's disposition toward those who are in Christ, who have faith in Christ, is one of peace. It's because of the work of Jesus. We celebrated two days ago uh, the Good Friday uh, celebration. It's, it's on Realm. You can watch it if you want to. You haven't seen it. Um, and, we, and we celebrated the work of Christ on our behalf. And, and, and we know that because of Christ, we can know God as the God of peace. We don't, we don't have to hope. We don't have to be worried or concerned that God will respond to us with peace. It's not up to us as if somehow we can achieve peace with God, work really hard in some way of somehow satisfying God. If that were the case, we would, not, we would never be at peace with God. Instead, we thank God that, that Christ has achieved that peace for us. When chaos, you know, while chaos abounds all around us, God himself, within himself, offers true peace. The God of peace is seeking peace with us and offers us peace. That is the message of the gospel. It is not that we must work really hard to please God and somehow we can be at peace with him. No, that, no the gospel is that God's peace is a gift to be received by faith. Paul puts it, the apostle Paul puts it very succinctly in Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, justified means forgiven of our sins, and the imputation of the, of the righteousness of Christ has been given to us for our account. Forgiven and the righteousness of Christ is by faith. We have been justified, made right before God by faith. We have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Verse 8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, that teaches us that we don't have to negotiate peace with God, but to receive it by faith through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, this church that this author is writing to were under severe persecution. It included suffering, included reproach and affliction, uh, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us. That's why the author, I believe, is invoking at this time in this context, the author is invoking a prayer that begins, may the God of peace Because peace is more, much more, than just the absence of conflict. It's much more than just tranquility of mind. The peace of God is is God's shalom. It's God's peace. It's soundness. It's well-being. It's it's wholeness, even in the midst of hardships, even in the midst of the unknown, even in the midst of conflict. Listen, when you, by faith, receive Jesus, who is the Bible says the prince of peace, you are reconciled to the God of peace. And yeah, you know, whenever we talk about having the peace of God, uh, there is a recognition, I think we need to recognize, that there's an, an, an internal peace that Christ brings. If you're a Christ follower this morning, uh, he's working in your heart, and, and we've experienced internal, tremendous, uh, 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 internal peace, a tremendous amount of peace. But we know that we live in a fallen, broken world. Again, where there's brokenness, there's sin, there's distress, there's grief, there's sorrow, there's worry, there's viruses. And therefore, this internal peace that God gives us is always imperfect. It never can be experienced as an objective and absolute peace. You and I know that. We strive for it, but we live in a fallen world. And we don't always rest in the peace of God. You know, 
the peace of God. The Bible says in Galatians that the peace is a fruit of the Spirit. And, and we lean on the Lord, trust in Him, we walk in the Spirit, and we experience that peace. But it's, but it's fleeting, if we're honest. It's not always present in our life with things going on. But listen, the peace of God is not the same as peace with God. Let me say it again. The peace of God is not the same as peace with the God of peace. Peace with the God of peace is absolute. Having peace with God is in a relationship with him. Having the peace of God is is that eternal peace that our heart longs for. But you must, I must have peace with God first. You see, because God is holy and just, our sins cause separation from him, and his holiness puts us not only in his debt, but a relationship. Our sin caused a relationship with this creator God who loves you of, of hostility and enmity, Romans 8 tells us. But where sin is forgiven, there is the removal of hostility and a relationship of peace is then the outcome. That is objective peace, not subjective peace relying on our feelings or our circumstances. Forgiveness with God is objective and can be assured in this life. And this benediction pronounces this intrinsic character of God as the God of peace. And the question for us this morning, do you know him that way? Do you have peace with God? Do you know that the creator and judge of all the earth has forgiven you of your sins and the relationship that was first at enmity and, and hostility toward him is now with one that is peace of peace? Are you at peace with God? If not, I, I, keep, keep following, track with me. Look at what it says next. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Again, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. Three important descriptions we'll cover this morning. Number one, what Jesus is the great shepherd, excuse me. Jesus is the great shepherd. The first thing I want to look at is the shepherd. Now what do shepherds do? What do shepherds do? Shepherds care for, provide, and protect Sheep as they lead their sheep, right? Shepherds lead their flock, they protect, they provide, they care for their flock. And what the author is saying here is not only, it is not only that uh, Jesus is the great shepherd, but only by following Jesus, because that's what shepherds do, that's what sheep do, we follow the shepherd, is only by following Jesus, by being a part of his flock that, that Jesus shepherds, that anyone can obtain or attain the blessings of salvation it is only by following jesus that we can have forgiveness of sins jesus said that in john chapter 10 this is what he said he said i am the door of the sheep all who come before me are thieves and robbers but the sheep do not listen to them i am the door if anyone enters by me he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture but the thief comes only to steal to kill and destroy I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And then he goes on to say, use the metaphor of the door to that of a shepherd. And Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. Not only am I the door, that you come in and out, but I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd, listen, lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, this great shepherd, unlike King David, the first shepherd king who risked his life for a sheep, who, who stepped in the middle of a battle with Goliath, if you remember, Jesus doesn't just risk his life, Jesus lays his life down. 
In ancient Israel, and I'm sure even today, one would expect a shepherd to defend his sheep unto death, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. Like, no, no shepherd just gives his life, but Jesus intentionally laid down his life for his sheep. Jesus' death is, is precisely what qualifies him to be the good shepherd. The death of the good shepherd is on behalf of the sheep. Jesus loves his sheep. Jesus loves and sees his helpless sheep, you and I, in grave danger, and then dies on their behalf. In their place, he lays down his life in the protection of his sheep. In the protection of this great shepherd, he lays down his life that by his death, they are saved. They are rescued. They are redeemed. That is why he's the great shepherd. The one who is selfless and who dies on behalf of his sheep. And that brings us to the second uh, description. Look what it says at the end of chapter, uh, verse 20. The blood of the eternal covenant. He is the great shepherd. By the blood of the eternal covenant. Now, if you've been tracking with us in Hebrews, we learned a lot about the old and, and new covenant from the book of Hebrews. A covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two or more people, two or more parties, and our scripture teaches us, and scripture teaches us that God is, is a covenant-making God. And by grace alone, our God sovereignly chose to establish relationship with his people, with his creatures, his, with his creation, by means of covenant. And what we've learned is that Jesus is our superior and better high priest and how that makes the new covenant in which he inaugurates, in which he mediates, a better, a greater, and a superior covenant. Under the old covenant, God in love and grace rescued God's people, if you know the story, from slavery and bondage in Egypt. And he, and he delivered them and he rescued them and he redeemed them from bondage. And he brought them out into the wilderness and he brought them together and he gave them the law, the old covenant law. We learn that Moses gave the law to his people and although there are a lot of elements of this law that is by grace, it also brought obligations for God's people. And we've learned in the book of Hebrews that everything in the law, including complete obedience to the law, was gloriously fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That in his person, in his work, the spotless, sinless Lamb of God, Son of God, fulfilled the law completely. Christ fulfilled all the old covenant laws, including the feast and the ceremonies, the rituals prescribed in the law. He even fulfilled the place of worship. In those days, they would worship in the temple, but God says, I'm going I'm to meet you. Not only meet you, but I'm going to dwell within you. I'm going to regenerate your heart. Hebrews 8 says that uh, in this new covenant, I will put my laws, God says, into your minds. Write them on your hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And this author is wisely here, I believe, in his benediction, reminding us that God's new covenant is ratified, look what it says, by the blood of the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Now, I realize, again, if you're not part of our church family, maybe you've never heard this before when it's talking about blood, uh, the need of blood to inaugurate and mediate a greater and superior covenant might seem a little odd to you here in 2020. What you need to know is that God gave his people in the law, in the book of Leviticus, a way in which they can approach, sinful man can approach a holy God and atone for their sins. It wasn't man's idea, it was God's idea. God decided how we ought to atone for our sins and approach him in his holiness. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, very important verse. 
says this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. God is saying, I have given the creature's life which is in the blood to make atonement for yourself covering the offense you have committed against me. So when blood is shed, death has occurred. As an atonement, those who are covered by the blood of the sacrifice are set free from the consequences of their sin. One life is given as payment for another life. In other words, the blood makes atonement at the cost of the life in place of the life. So if a person's gonna have their sins paid for, the consequence of sin removed, someone must die, blood must be shed. That's what God is teaching us in the Old Testament. God would not be just, would not be righteous simply to just forgive sins unless a penalty was obtained. Like any judge, like any good judge who enforces a a penalty for laws being broken, God must punish sin. So year after year in Israel, under the Old Covenant, God's people would slaughter animals and shed their blood. It was only temporary, only provisional atonement. But to teach them how shocking and horrifying and grotesque sin is before a holy God. When you brought your animal to the temple, you, you, you know that it was your sin, it was your guilt, it was your rebellion against God that caused the death, that caused that bloodshed, caused the suffering and pain. And you'd walk away from the temple back in antiquity, back in the Old Testament, back in the Old Covenant, you would walk away knowing and feeling the weight of your sin knowing exactly that what that animal got, you deserve because of your sin. And the old covenant was teaching us that. And over and over, year after year, yes, sacrifices were being done in the temple. And the reason they did it over and over again, because there was no single, perfect, satisfactory substitution under the Old Testament, under the old covenant for sin. But now our author is reminding us, Christ Jesus sheds his blood. He's poured out as our substitute, paying the penalty for our sins, for the wages of sin is death. And by his death, Jesus secured salvation, secured our eternal, never-ending redemption, final and full. No more animal sacrifices are necessary. And therefore, the need of blood, the work of Christ, on the cross was necessary to satisfy justice, God's holiness, and to pay for the penalty of man's sin. The blood of Christ is central to the new covenant. It is through his blood we are forgiven. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all, once and for all, into the holy places, into that place where God dwelt, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but how did he enter into the presence of God? By the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called, those who know him, trust in him, may receive the promised eternal inheritance, God himself. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep precisely because he shed his blood on their behalf. And that blood established the eternal covenant. 
There's no need for any other covenant to come. No need for any other atonement to come. He is the everlasting covenant. Is the, is the once and for all sacrifice for the very purpose of which God created the world to demonstrate his glory in salvation as Jesus shed his blood for sinners. And when you place your faith in the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, his atoning death on the cross, his shed blood in the new covenant as your only hope of salvation, your only hope of forgiveness, your only hope to have communion with God, you will be at peace with the God of peace. Which brings us to our final description. The God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. Family, Jesus, the great shepherd, can lead you through the gate, can lead you into eternal life, can lead you through life's hard times, difficulties, trials, persecution, because the tomb is empty. The covenant is called an eternal covenant, which affects reach forward everlastingly because the tomb is empty. Because Jesus lives and reigns forever, he is able to offer a secure and eternal salvation because the tomb is empty. Jesus Christ offered himself as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, guaranteeing forgiveness because the tomb is empty. Because of this empty tomb, we know that Jesus was an effective sacrifice, a high priest, the better and greater high priest, a superior high priest, to any other priest, to any other way, to any other communion, to any other mediation to God. In fact, without the resurrection, there would be no new covenant. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is central and foundational to our faith. You know, other religions teach all kinds of things about ethics, ethical structures, concepts about heaven and afterlife and various writings and holy writings. It is only the gospel It is only the gospel that has a God who became human, took on flesh, became like one of us without sin, who actually died for his people and rose again from the dead. And now rise and now because he has risen from the dead, he has all the power, all the glory to rule over the church and the world. You know, the book of Hebrews has made it crystal clear that Christ has provided not only atonement, salvation, Forgiveness of sins and those who trust him can have their sins forgiven. But we've been learning over and over again because of Christ and what Christ has done, his atoning work, his sacrifice, his blood that was shed. We now, the people of God, the children of God, those who trusted Christ, have access, uninhibited, unrestricted access to the throne of God. That we don't come on our own, we come through the blood of Jesus. Remember, when Jesus died on the cross, the gospel according to Matthew tells us that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The very thick veil that hung in the temple was a barrier between the very presence, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God in the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And when Jesus died on the cross, that temple was ripped in two. The veil was no longer necessary to separate sinful man from a holy God. The blood of Christ made the way. Hebrews chapter 10 again, verse 19. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place, into the presence of God, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Access blown wide open. The atoning death, the shed blood of Jesus, this unbridled entrance into communion and intimacy with God. 
See, Jesus, our advocate, our high priest, your mediator, is always and forever your intercessor, giving you the assurance of his eternal love, providing for you access because the tomb is empty. Because the tomb is empty. He is risen from the dead. He has all authority and belongs to him and he is the one who ushers us in by his blood into the very presence of God because the tomb is empty. We can now know, as the Hebrews 4 tells us, that we have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find and may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need because the tomb is empty. So what does that mean for us this morning? In a world where there's so much uncertainty, so many things changing, so much stress and anxiety, so many things that we thought were, were going to remain stable that has been shaken in our life. We can know for certain, we can have confidence for certain that the blood of Christ, his self-sacrifice, was accepted as payment for our sins, that we can have peace with the God of peace because the tomb is empty. We have never-ending access to the throne of grace, to the throne of God, because the tomb is empty. We have absolute certainty that we can have peace with the God of peace when everything around us seems to be changing and in turmoil. We can have peace with the God of peace because the tomb is empty. Paul said in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile. And, very importantly, you are still in your sins. If Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And then he goes on to write, but Christ has risen from the grave. Christ's sacrifice perfectly secured his covenant promise for his people. God was satisfied with his sacrifice, his atonement, and God rose him from the dead to carry those promises into eternity. And the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, listen carefully, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ validates the infinite value of the blood of Jesus. The empty tomb means the sacrifice was sufficient and you are not still in your sins if you trust in him. The empty tomb is, is, is proof of how perfect and all-sufficient Christ's sacrifice was on your behalf, on my behalf. By raising him from the dead, Jesus proved his authority and power to break the bonds of sin and to assure forgiveness and eternal life for those who will accept his offer, his gift of salvation. It is that God, it is that God, the God of peace, brought again from the dead, Jesus Christ the Lord, the great shepherd, by the blood of the eternal covenant, verse 21, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This God will equip you with everything good so that you can do his will, that is which is pleasing in his sight, as he does the work in you and in you and in, uh, in me. We're going to look at that passage uh, more next week. But let me just say this. In John chapter 6, Jesus just finished feeding a multitude, thousands upon thousands of people with a boy's lunch. Five barley loaves and two fish. And after they were filled, uh, they kept following Jesus. Jesus turned around and saw the crowd after he fed them, and this is what he said. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, feeding of the thousands with five loaves and two fish, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Your tummy's full. Then he says this, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. He'll give it to you. They were confused. Maybe you're wondering, what does this mean? They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we do to do the will of God, the works of God? Really the same, the same thing he's talking about here in chapter 13, verse 21, that we will do his will, working in us, pleasing in his sight. What, what must we do? Jesus turned to this crowd, and he's turning to you this morning, and he says this. This is the work, this is the will of God, this is the work of God, that you believe in him, that's Jesus, whom he, the Father, has sent. Believe on Jesus, whom the Father has sent. So the first and foremost important, most important thing we need to understand about the work of God, the will of God, that which is pleasing, is to trust in Christ, is to believe on Christ, is to accept Christ as your Savior, the Lord of your life. That's the proclamation of the gospel. God is a God of peace. It is our sin and rebellion against him that caused separation from him. It was Jesus Christ, the great shepherd, who gave his life for you. He lived the perfect life, a life you are required to live, but no, you can't. You will never fulfill, but he fulfills the requirements of the law, which is necessary to have communion with God. Then he sheds his blood, he dies in atonement for sin, and by faith, when we believe in him, he forgives us of our sins, and he counts and imputes his righteousness, his full following of God's law to your account, to my account, by faith. And because the tomb is empty, we know his blood sacrifice was all sufficient, completely accepted, This isn't advice, this is good news. This is news for you to respond to this morning. Will you respond? Will you respond to the good news of Jesus Christ? How? Simple. By repenting, meaning turning from your sins, turning from trying to justify yourself, to try to have value, meaning, and purpose in yourself. Repent from trying to justify yourself and trying to save yourself. And receive, believe, trust in Jesus Christ as the only means of forgiveness and salvation. Believe that he loves you. Believe that he died for you. Believe that he paid the penalty for your sins as he shed his blood on your behalf. And place your faith, your personal trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Perfect life, shed his blood, buried in the tomb, three days later rose from the dead. I want to invite you to come to Jesus. He's alive and well, living, reigning, and ruling. And he's calling everyone everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. Will you come to Jesus this Easter? Come to him. Let let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for just loving us and caring for us and not leaving us in our sin to have to bear the penalty of our sin, but sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived that life I could never live, we could never live. And then because he is perfect, the perfect God-man, he was able to identify with us yet without sin and die on a Roman cross, shedding his blood as an atonement for sin. 
Thank you, Father, it doesn't end there. The three days later, he rose from the grave, validating and confirming every promise he made. And now, because of the resurrection, we can have hope of forgiveness and we can know for sure that Jesus Christ's sacrifice, payment for our sins, was accepted. And now, Father, I pray for those who are listening right now that they would turn from their sins and trust in you, that they would bow their head, bow their heart, and say, come, Lord Jesus, be Savior and Lord. I believe that you died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins. I no longer justify myself, but now I follow you. I will pick up my cross and walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.